We live in a twilight world. We live in a twilight world. And there are no friends at dusk. And welcome to the very first episode of Friends at Dusk, a Christopher Nolan filmography podcast. I'm your co-host, Marshall Doig. And I'm Jake Harris, your other co-host. And we are very excited to be here and start talking about all things Christopher Nolan. Yeah. So to give a little description of why we're here, how we got here, what we're going to be doing. Basically, Jake and I would talk about you know, have regular phone calls talking about film, books. We did this with Star Wars. We did it last year with Lord of the Rings. And we had our own personal between the two of us book club with reading through Lord of the Rings for the first time in a while. And every few chapters we'd call up and talk about it. And I would constantly be saying, hey, we should make a podcast out of this. This sounds, I think we sound really good. I'm such a narcissist. And <laughs> once we came around looking for our next kind of project, I guess, of something to talk about, I suggested Christopher Nolan's filmography. And then I, a little bit later, I said, and maybe we should do a podcast. Hey, and now we're here. It's every young boy's dream to to get his own podcast. Um, no one's ever thought of this, that before. No one's ever had that no. idea before. No one has ever had the idea of a Christopher Nolan podcast before, but we're going to do it, damn it. And so we we also have, uh, we the, for a little bit more background, we uh, we both went to school together. Marshall is a few years ahead of me in school, um, and so we knew each other from TCU's journalism program. And so we, aside from that, also spent a lot of time in the newsroom just talking about uh, TV shows, like Lost, other movies, Star Wars, stuff like that. And so we... Uh, just kept in touch since graduation. And then the book club stuff, like you mentioned, was really just like out of COVID. We were like, we should watch Star Wars together, but also I don't want to get anyone sick or travel anywhere because this was like right when lockdown happened. Literally weeks after we decided to do a Star Wars marathon in person, we'd go visit each other. Yeah. And then it started. And then we said, oh, we'll just do it next month in April. And that didn't work out because, you know, every, everything was going to shut down and just we were going to come back in two weeks. It was going to be fine. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. And then we ended up watching uh, all the Star Wars movies remotely and then just decided to keep it going from there. Uh, so moving forward, talking about Christopher Nolan, uh, just a blanket spoiler warning. Uh, just assume anything we talk about here is just, you know, you've been forewarned. If you haven't seen it, a lot of this stuff is pretty old. So hopefully you have seen it. But if not, uh, take a minute. Each episode is going to delve into different movies and his influences on all of his movies. And so we'll give you an opportunity to go see those if you haven't already. But today we are going to go look at a book, actually, that was recently written about Christopher Nolan called The Nolan Variations, The Movies, Mysteries, and Marvels of Christopher Nolan by Tom Schoen. Um, and so we're going to get a little bit more into that chat here in a minute. But first, to kick it off, let's uh, trade Christopher Nolan origin stories, basically. So how did you uh, first get introduced to Christopher Nolan, Marshall? That's a good question, because I've been thinking about this question a lot. <laughs> I'm trying to remember what was the start of it. And honestly, it's kind of like the scene in Inception where Cobb is telling Ariadne, you know, the thing about dreams is you never remember the beginning of them. You just show up and you're there. But uh -huh. I, the answer for me, I'm really positive, is that I first watched Batman Begins. I had heard I watched it my senior year of high school right before I graduated. And this was the summer this was just a few months before the dark Knight came out. So oh, you know, yeah. I had, I'd heard about the prestige when it came out a couple of years before one of my classmates on the school newspaper wrote a review of it was raving about it. I didn't watch it at the time. I should have, <laughs> but I'm pretty positive. My first Christopher Nolan movie was Batman begins and how I watched it Same. was, Same. One of, yeah, it was one of the dead weeks at, you know, winding down my senior year of high school. I had nothing to do during one newspaper period. So I took the DVD and put it into one of the trusty computers in the lab and watched it on 
you know, a 15 inch monitor, <laughs> the optimal experience. And, but I did it, you know, watched it, was able to watch it all the way. I think I watched it all the way through that day. And <laughs> it was really stunning for me being at the time, my conception of a superhero movie. Fortunately, had the Spider-Man movies, which were, you know, right. One yeah, and two were, were fan, fantastic. I think, uh, and two was right around the same time as Batman Begins. So, right, right. But there's also things not quite on that level. You know, there's X-Men and other, I'm sure there's a few others before things really ramped up, you know, in 2008. But just the fact, I think in my mind at the time, I was like, man, so they could be, they could be a little campy though, you know, kind of the Marvel thing. Even then the kind of with how Sam Raimi did Spider-Man, the thing of the bit of the camp, a bit of the silliness, you know, you have Bruce Campbell in there with, with his B movie shtick, which is great. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I watched Batman Begins with also with the memories of the nineties Batman films in my head, you know, the Joel Schumacher stuff. And I remember seeing those in the theater and even though as a kid, they still stuck in my mind as, man, these are weird. You know, what, what, what is this? <laughs> so that was my headspace going into Batman Begins. And I watched that and it was unbelievable. I couldn't believe that just this, you know, the tropes of the seriousness of it, the, you know, the greediness, the everything, the, the realism, all of that. And it was so impressive. And I think I really watched Batman Begins because I was really feeling the hype for The Dark Knight. You know, at the beginning of that year, you know, Heath Ledger passed away and I was a big mm -hmm. Heath Ledger fan, particularly from A Knight's Tale. So I figured, well, I better watch Batman Begins before The Dark Knight arrives. And I did and couldn't have gone better. So since that time, it's been, it's all been gravy. I've seen every <laughs> feature, of course, and my token phrase, which I will probably repeat ad nauseum during the course of this whole thing is I still have not met a Christopher Nolan film I couldn't get along with. So that's my tale. And so what about you, Jake? What is, uh, what's your experience? Uh, so Batman Begins definitely was the first one that I saw of his. I saw that in the theater when that came out. And at the time I had nothing like no prior experience to be like, Oh, this is definitely a Christopher Nolan movie. I was just like, Oh, this is a, really new way of looking at Batman. Like you were saying, like the only memory I had was the Tim Burton Batman movies. And then like the animated stuff from the nineties. Cause I don't think I even watched Batman and Robin or uh, Batman forever really as a kid when those came out. But really, I think the first thing that I remember was whenever I would go to blockbuster as a kid, the VHS cover for Memento was always like, just like seared into my brain, like that Polaroid within a Polaroid within a Polaroid. Right thing um but even like looking at it i knew i was like oh that i don't know if i should be watching that because <laughs> like i was like eight nine years old and uh, i was like i don't know that that movie's probably r-rated i shouldn't go get that i i was a very uh i was not a sheltered child but i feel like i sheltered myself from a lot of stuff let's be real eight or like, nine oh, no. is probably a little bit too early to watch memento yeah was, yeah pretty fair. <laughs> I, I, when i did watch it later i was like Ooh. um but the visual of that always stuck with me. And then later when I, after I saw like Dark Knight Prestige and everything, I was like, oh yeah, he did this movie. Let me go back and watch this. And then that was like after he had become like a brand unto himself, like the book, we'll get into it later, but mentions like how he later, like one of his movies, like I think it was the Prestige was one of those movies where like you couldn't describe it within like any sort of genre. Cause like, is it a whodunit? Is it a magic movie is it a period piece people just started being like oh no it's just a christopher nolan film exactly and yeah. so they're like oh that that makes sense so yeah it was mostly it, it, just the memory of seeing that like guy pierce's polaroid on the memento cover stuck with me but then with batman begins i uh the the biggest one that i have though is seeing dark knight opening night i was on a vacation with my family in florida and we took i think it was my it was like two or three of my cousins my brother and my uncle took all of us and the place was like packed you know because this was back before you could pick your seat in the theater yeah, yeah. Um, and everything like you know you had to get there ahead of time just to get a good seat and like people were like lining up in the stairs the hype for this movie was insane and like 
after the opening like bank robbery scene like people were cheering and clapping like it was it was nuts like it was an amazing first weekend theater going experience that has yet to be topped but that and just yeah the memories of memento and batman begin have been the the ones that started me on it. and i it's funny when you mentioned wanting to go back through all of the nolan movies i was like yeah that'd be good because i haven't seen some of them like I haven't seen Memento in a while, haven't seen Insomnia in a really long time. And I only just saw Following for the first time a few years ago. So it would be good to like watch all of them in a sequential order to kind of see how each one grows off from the last one. But I wouldn't call him like my favorite director or filmmaker, really. But then again, I've like always like been in the theater for the ones that i've been able to see in the theater just because i'm like this is going to be an event and this is going to be interesting and will hold my attention and we can get more into that later but kind of like you yeah i haven't really like met any one of his movies that i have like outright disliked and uh, there's been a few that like i rank up there with some of my favorites that i've ever seen but yeah just an interesting entry into the the american film canon basically so it's just excited to dive deep back into it and you know see what i can glean from it i've already gotten a lot that a lot more out of the book that we've been reading that i i have been realizing i was like oh i can take a different look at some of these movies and maybe approach it from a different light right right and i do like how you mentioned the dark knight was your first theatrical christopher Nolan experience i feel like that's a very relevant thing to mention because it was also mine and my experience tracked really a lot with yours with the applause and i yeah, Off the top yeah. of my head, I don't know if I, yeah, there's definitely an ovation when that one ended. And I've been, I've been to a few movies where that's happened, but that one I'd probably have to say is really sticks out. Cause then I went, I saw the dark Knight seven more times in the theater after that. So yeah, it really made an impact on me. And as far as rewatching his filmography, I've done it twice. The first time was in 2011, the summer of 2011, when there were just oh, what, six or seven films to go through with the latest mm-hmm. being Inception. And then the last time I did it was actually at the start of 2020. I was getting ready <laughs> for Tenet. And then again, the pandemic hit and I wrapped it up. Uh, I actually, Well, I didn't quite wrap it up actually until 2021. I got to an interstellar, stopped and then watched Dunkirk and last summer and also finally Tenet for the first time. So finally caught up i'm I'm there but yeah i guess when i think about it christopher nolan's films have kind of influenced me in subtle ways you know there's a few little things i was introduced to or just specific habits in terms of oh thinking more about analog things and physical media which i'll get into in a little bit and in terms of favorite director it's probably the easy choice for me to say that I'm not as, you know, I haven't seen nearly as many movies as you have, but you know, off the top of my head, I'd probably say that I, I think I might be able to say that he's, he's my favorite director and yeah, I really enjoy everything he's done. Yeah. I know there's plenty of detractors, which, you know, fine, you know, can't be universally popular, but this will definitely be, <laughs> you know, a very positively toned evaluation of things not that we don't have i would say any complaints or criticisms but if you're looking for yet i don't know who yet yeah yeah i'll see when we i'll see when we rewatch some of the older the earlier stuff sure (laughs) but if you're looking for something like more like a hater's guide this is not the place you're going to find it so yeah so let's talk about the book and just a general outline before we really go deep into some of the topics that we want to talk about yeah, uh, so this is uh, it's a book written by uh, a guy named Tom Schoen, and he is, let me pull up the book here, he is the uh, film critic for the Sunday Times, he's written uh, some other books, uh, some stuff about Scorsese, and then just about blockbuster movies in general, uh, the type of movie, like summer blockbusters, not blockbuster, the retail chain, right, but right. Uh, yeah, so it's not really like a biography book. Uh, although it does have a lot of interviews with Nolan, arguably probably some of the most extensive interviews that he's done about his work ever, I think from what I've been able to read. And it's not also not like a, an analysis of his movies per like critically on, ba- on like whether they're good or bad. It's just more like a 
narrative of the process and the form behind a lot of the movies. So you get a lot of tidbits about scoring for all the different movies, like raising money for distribution, how he approached certain plot elements, and like especially a lot of stuff about how uh, he and his brother Jonathan wrote a lot of the movies. So it's it's a very like process heavy book, which is really interesting because I love hearing about all that behind the scenes stuff. But yeah, it's a it's a pretty thick book. It's about 400 pages long. Uh, got lots of nice pictures printed on really nice paper. So it's got a lot of a lot of stuff too in there about like film history and the influences that went into a lot of the movies, uh, which is what we're going to be focusing on episode by episode. And I don't know. I learned a whole lot that I did not know about any a lot of these movies already, especially in terms of like what influenced him for each movie. Uh, and some of those influences are very plain to see, like he gets compared to Kubrick and Hitchcock a lot, but then there's a lot of other stuff that you might not have been able to pick out unless you like looked at some film history stuff. So that was right. really interesting. Yeah, I, I agreed. One thing that really stood out to me apart from the discussion of the titular sh- subject is just all the other movies that were talked about and Christopher Nolan's love of film and I feel like that's kind of like a given for such a big director, but just reading about it and and hearing the way he talks about movies and his process was really, really great to me, including one tidbit that you were talking to me the other day about some of his favorite films and things that people wouldn't expect of him. But I'll let you share that one, I guess, and then we'll really, really get going here. Yeah. So I said he's been compared to, I mean, everyone has, you know, probably compared him to like Stanley Kubrick or Alfred Hitchcock, just the cold and like cool and like unemotional have always been like adjectives that have described his work really just because so much of his movies are like puzzle box things or their movies where they have twists at the end. And so like it becomes like a almost like an M. Night Shyamalan thing where you like you go into it with a set of expectations and you go into it wanting to be fooled or you go into it knowing that you're about to be fooled and so like that's part of the gimmick basically but reading this i was like he's probably got a lot more like goofiness to him than people realize like he said he was a huge fan of the fast and furious movies he's a part of the family and he also used there's a lot of talk in this book where like he talks to tom Schoen and like they do like thought experiments a lot and one of the the experiments he gives him is to like kind of figure out how movies relay the concept of time like pick any movie that like is not a time travel movie or is not like a action thing like pick a romantic comedy or something that time is not really a plot point and like kind of pinpoint like okay well how long does it take from the beginning of the movie to the end of the movie like how long do you think spans that time frame and like there's not really a good answer for a lot of it because the film medium just kind of blurs all of that but the example he gave as a movie for that was the naked gun <laughs> and yeah leslie nielsen and then the the example that tom Schoen came back to give him was tootsie and immediately right. he was like oh yeah that's a great movie like i love that movie and people are always surprised that i I'm like a huge comedy fan, but that also got me thinking of like, what would a, com- a Christopher Nolan comedy look like? Uh, which would be interesting. Very black one. Yes. Very dark. Cause there are some humorous <laughs> elements in some of his movies, but very few and far between. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And even then sometimes that's, I know that some of the humor or attempts at humor have been a little bit excoriated, but definitely. Yeah. I mean, if you're a fan of films, there's, I know some people have their blind spots. Mine is kind of horror films that I don't gravitate to them too much. Not that I think they don't have any worth, but it's tough for me to try and get to those. But yeah, why wouldn't somebody like this be be well-versed in pretty much everything or a lot of things that aren't necessarily what he typically deals in? You know, it's, it's like a musician who or a band, you know, who in one genre who expresses admiration for someone else in something totally different that you wouldn't associate, you know, it, it, oh, yeah, it does make yeah. sense. So, yeah. And with that, so what are some of the, the big things and what we'll do here is we'll, um, each episode we're going to use and we're going to focus on like how the, the book is structured by using like each film as a way to examine like some aspect of the filmmaking process. Um, And so we're going to keep doing that episode by episode. But this one right now, we'll just talk about 
our overall thoughts about the book and like other things that stood out. So what was, what were some of the big things that stood out from the book for you? Yeah. So I kind of sat down before I revisited anything with the book and tried to think of, all right, what, what are the things? And just totally out of my head. And the first thing that I thought of was how Christopher Nolan talks about music in this book. Mm -hmm. uh, there's actually four areas in the introduction that Tom Trump says he was going to focus on. It wasn't, he says it's not going to be a standard behind the scenes, look at every film and kind of a, a narrative of how each film was made, but he was going to try and focus on when discussing each film, four areas of the filmmaking process, writing, editing, designing, and scoring. So there's a whole lot of talk about mm -hmm. music in each of these chapters. And I especially love that because I was a teenager and half the stuff I listened to was film scores, Star Wars, yeah, a lot of John Williams, plenty of Hans Zimmer, of course, oh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. some James Horner scores, you know, Apollo 13 yes. and, yeah. and Glory. So mm -hmm. all of that. So early in the book, when uh, they're talking about Nolan's time at boarding school and talking about how he would lie in the dark and listen to his Walkman to film scores like Vangelis's Chariots of Fire uh, and how they frame that as like yeah, the only yeah. escape from the drudgery and repetitiveness and monotony of boarding school life using batteries that he had to heat on the radiator to get more juice out of them. But I <laughs> identified so strongly with that, just so strongly by seeing okay, yeah, this is a guy who did the same thing I did. You know, I would, you know, have my stereo in my room, throw in the CD and crank it up and do homework. Uh, yeah. And as an added bonus, later when he was talking about Interstellar, he talked about trying to get the pipe organ in there, uh, throwing that as oh, a that suggestion to Hans Zimmer. Yeah. And said it had been one of the sounds of his childhood from Catholic school and also okay. Daily yeah. Chapel at Haleybury. So anyway, the film music, big thing. So just to give an idea of this, I highlighted a few quotes just to illustrate how I appreciate kind of somewhat like the poetry a little bit to me of how he talked about it. So for Interstellar, again, he had kind of a lot of insight into how he uses music. He really talked about it a lot there because it was maybe one of the most enmeshed uses of music or he was kind of a co-collaborator with Hans Zimmer is how they describe it in that chapter. We'll probably get into more details once we get to that point. But for now, uh, he said, I was very interested in playing with the idea of the organ as one of these tools to inspire religiosity or awe. And Interstellar is quite specifically not a religious film, but you're still looking for what you can tap into, what associations you can use to create a feeling of awe. And the organ felt like that. And then he talks about how they recorded the organ in a church and using the reverberations and the echoes. So by hearing the echo of the music ringing out, we're using it to create a sense of space, even though it's actually created by confinement. It's a very architectural idea. So if you walk into a cathedral, all of that inspires awe. And then, you know, he talked about Dunkirk and his attempt to constantly have music or sound going and the undercurrent of kind of a ticking or, or that urgency of time. Yeah. And how they like took the, uh, the time ticking from like the watch and just sped that up or slowed it down or manipulated it as much as they needed to. That was cool. Right. And he was talking about how proud he was of, you know, how tightly he says of all the films I've done, it has the tightest fusion of music, sound and picture. And kind of in the wrap up chapter at the end of the book, it says, uh, he's kind of like Hitchcock most strongly in the way that as time's gone on, he's grown more intrigued by the abstract potential of composition and the use of music to pattern and structure his films. And the last thing on this that I'll mention is a great quote when he was talking about the Dark Knight and talking about the sound design and how he intentionally left music out of the chase of Dent oh, being yeah. in the police yeah. van yeah. And, yeah. and the Joker being in the 18-wheeler. The and yeah, he, he told Richard King, the sound editor, to just you know go to town. This is your thing. You're basically scoring this. We're not going to have any music. So off of that... <laughs> kind of finished his talk about that by saying people have asked if i would ever make a musical and i'm like they're all musicals so <laughs> hearing the way he talked about not only music but the sound and as it, the book went on as he got further into his later films how he's put those things together 
that was one of the things that stood out to me for sure. Uh, the biggest one that I think stood out to me mostly was Nolan as a brand, like as a director that, um, has something to say, like there towards the end of the book, the comment is that he's a smuggler. He, he works within the system as a way to bring like in a genre system as a way to put his own ideas into movies. But like, you don't really see a lot of him in it supposedly. And then the kind of how it's not autobiographical, but what it's what shown describes as self vanishment and how he really does try and shy away from any interpretation of his works that you could put autobiographical insight into, even though like clearly like, and we'll talk about this here in a little bit, like his time at boarding school impacted so much of everything that he's done from like themes of his work to how like they built sets to uh, like what you just mentioned with interstellar with the organ. But he he has always resisted like an over-reliance on kind of like an English class level analysis of his stuff where it's almost like he just takes like a, you know, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar uh, look at some of his stuff because he would much rather you he he brought up a thing about Hitchcock where he was like, you could go really deep into looking at like all the like subtextual and like psychoanalysis stuff with Psycho. Um, but if you go too far, you lose the beauty of it actually being a really thrilling movie that on its surface is just was meant to like scare and meant to enthrall people. And so it, you get the feeling that he is very much of the sort that just wants to have the film function first and foremost as like a, an audience crowd pleaser. And then if you want to go deeper and to take away like a deeper meaning into it, you can. But if you don't want to do that, then you still are seeing like a really good heist movie or a good space movie or a good crime thriller whodunit type movie. Yeah, there's the thing he says about at one point he talks about movies being entertainment. I think <laughs> he quotes Gladiator, you know, are you not entertained? And right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also at one point he talks about his criteria for at least enjoying a movie. He, he needs to at least see that the filmmaker enjoyed making it or had some kind of kind of cared about how it turned out and he says if you don't if i can't tell that you really care then this is not worth my time and i think it definitely comes through really clearly in what he does and there's actually the he says one thing about kind of early on you know about every film he does he wants to he has to believe i'm trying to make the best movie ever you know it never occurred to me people were not trying to make the best movie ever. Like, why would you try to make a movie if you weren't trying to make the best movie ever? Right. Yeah. So it's clear that, you know, he, as a medium, he's, he just wants to make something that people will enjoy <laughs> first and foremost. Yeah. And he says yeah. in that same, following up that same quote, you pour, you pour yourself into this, trying to make the best movie ever. And when someone likes it, when they connect with it, it he says, it's like, it's great. It's a huge thrill for me. I love it. Yeah, and because I, I think you also had noted the uh, the stuff in there about he uh, his ambiguous endings and what he thinks about his endings, right? Right, right. To start off with that, there's a, a fun quote that or that shown uh, con contextualizes he quotes someone else, a guy named William Empson, who has said the seven types of ambiguity, and then at the end of a chapter. Shown says there's an eighth type of ambiguity, no one's favorite, because he previously to this is trying to he's talking about how he discussed with Nolan, talking about the ending of Memento and sharing his interpretation, trying to wheedle something out of out of Nolan and, and get the right answer. And all Nolan does is smile at him, a Cheshire smile <laughs> and points him back to the prestige. Yeah. You know, you want to be fooled. So yeah. um, you think you want to work it out, but not really. Exactly. So, you know, yeah. so Sean sums this up as saying, in other words, as much as I want Nolan to confirm whether I have solved the puzzle, I don't want him to tell me because then the fun would go out of it. On some level, I want to be fooled, from which we can infer the slightly cruel dynamic that informs Nolan's films. Call it William Empson's eighth type of ambiguity, Nolan's favorite, when it's the other guy's problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the th biggest thing I, I noted about ambiguity uh, where was it when they were talking about the prestige Sean writes, there's a line from the prestige, you know, disguise it after Robert Angier introduces the, the real transported man after he has the machine from Tesla, disguise it, give them a reason to doubt it. 
uh, someone says, and Joan writes, the line pokes a mischievous hole in our presumed demand for realism in movies. We want films realistic enough to be fooled, but no, not so realistic that we actually forget we are being fooled and mistake a gun battle, say, for the real thing. And then he quotes French film theorist Etienne uh, Souriau from 1952. But caught up in the game, refusing to be fooled and yet enjoying it, we refuse to believe our eyes. With cinema, we just give ourselves over to it. We delight in being credulous. And then Sean continues, so too with the magic of Robert Angier and the cinema of Christopher Nolan. So I noted on that, yeah, you want to be fooled. And this pairs really well with Christopher Nolan's comments in a later chapter about Interstellar. He's having an argument with Tom Joan about, well, you know, you, you say it's a deus ex machina with these fifth beings placing this wormhole and throwing the Tesseract in there. I just didn't want the audience to think too hard about this. Just I want to make a movie where no one pays for a cab is what he says. You know, can you just let me make these? So <laughs> just basically suspend your disbelief a little. Let me do this. And yeah. finally on that, a great, great quote. They're uh, uh, quoting a guy who uh, let Melier, uh, George, George Melier uses theater back in the day to film some of his early films, uh, Robert Houdin. Uh, the ordinary man sees in conjuring tricks a challenge offered to his intelligence and hence representations of sleight of hand become a combat in which he de determines on conquering. The clever man, on the contrary, when he visits a conjuring performance, only goes to enjoy the illusions and, far from offering the performer the slightest obstacle, he is the first to aid him. The more he is deceived, the more he is pleased, for that is what he paid for. And at the very least for Nolan's latter films, this really kind of sounds like maybe the way you should approach it uh, at least with what we read in the book with what no one says about them or at least if you take this approach then maybe you're less likely to be disappointed or maybe confused so in other words we kind of come to the line in tenet that maybe best sums up like any <laughs> approach to the nolan film yeah you know what i'm gonna say here don't try to understand yeah. it feel it and i think maybe taking that approach maybe as we go through this might be a little beneficial not to say we can't think and try to use our brains but it's finding a balance between trying to analyze it trying to think about it trying to solve the puzzle box when sometimes that's merited with plenty of the films but also trying to just let it as, as he as nolan actually says and just let it wash over you yeah because especially with that uh one thing i noted when he was talking about the just let it wash over you comment towards the end was i think he I don't know if it became a burden to like make a movie where like all the little breadcrumbs perfectly line up and everything perfectly snaps into place at the end because he had done that so well with Memento and with Prestige and everything and had juggled like everything so well with all these other movies so that people are like, especially with the advent of YouTube and people looking for like the gotcha videos, like the, what is it? Red Letter Media where I'm just looking for like, plot holes and stuff to like stick a pin in to be like, Oh, well this didn't line up. So that's a plot hole. Like plot hole is like the most overused thing by people who don't understand it now, but that's a rant for another time. Uh, but yeah. I think he, he, he gets into a little bit about how maybe he was like, I think maybe I, I set myself up for more scrutiny for stuff which is fine because like i want people to watch my movies and i want people to kind of get stuff out of them because we're inviting that by creating this type of narrative but also like the second i do something where i want to make a movie where no one pays for a cab people start saying that it's a plot hole when i just wanted to do that and that's annoying and so i think it's interesting that it's the don't think just feel when like so many of the criticisms about his movies are that they don't feel like they're not emotional, which like, I feel like interstellar is very emotional. Undoubtedly. Um, Unequivocally. So yeah. Yeah. Like inception is very emotional in places. And so like, I think there's an undercurrent of that, but I think it's interesting that that is the, that was the main quote for a lot of like, when Tenet came out, everyone was like, Oh yeah, just like turn your brain off. Like, no, you like, if you, <laughs> Yes, just let it wash over you, but also like you're going to go crazy trying to like analyze that every step. But also just like if you don't think about it, you're kind of just like, well, what did I just watch? Right, right. Yeah, he, he definitely talks about yeah struggling with that. And it was interesting reading about that on Tenet when he kind of gets into his own head. He talked about being in the editing room and thinking, OK, 
I'm making this for the audience, but also now I know there's all these people who slow things down, freeze frame, run it back, everything. <laughs> and I think when you get to the end of the book, it's, oh, he had some, some great stuff about trying to talk about sincerity and, you know, he says, can you be sincere and self-conscious? I'm not sure you can. There are things in this project yeah, that are yeah. all very direct repeats of things I've done in the past. You know, so in terms of tenant, I'm shooting a shell case going back into a gun. And I've literally done that before in Memento. And the sincerity to me is in not taking them out. And he says, you're, um, I'm not going to be different for the sake of being different. The approach to me has to be sincere. When I go to see somebody's film and I don't think the filmmaker loved the film, like I mentioned earlier, that's when I feel I wasted my time. So yeah, he's clearly painful, almost painfully self-aware uh, at this point of, of how his films are perceived. And the fact that I think he's able to continue turning out successes, whether you define that success in terms of critical reception, the box office or the cinema score. Yeah. They, yeah. They're all, they all pretty much work. If you, if you look at those numbers. So what are, what are some other things we can maybe pivot off of and, and get into that we haven't discussed yet? I'll let you take this one. Um, yeah, uh, another big thing that I noticed that I related to a lot, and I did not realize this about him until I read this book, was just the nature of his dual citizenship growing up, um, him constantly going back and forth from England to Chicago. I am not a dual citizen of anything, but I, I did grow up moving around a lot through uh, the military. My dad was stationed in a lot of different places, uh, and we weren't really in any one spot for more than like five years. Uh, five years was the longest uh, that we were ever in any one place. And he talks a lot about and here about, am I a Brit living in Chicago or am I like a Chicago suburbanite, like taking holiday in London basically all the time. And so like that feeling of like displacement and that feeling of constantly trying to feel like you're an outsider, even though he wasn't really like by all accounts was very privileged like his his dad did marketing work for ridley scott and a bunch of other high-powered accounts he could fly anywhere um, since his mom was a, a flight attendant yeah, yeah yeah exactly like he he was not like an outsider from like a class perspective but like an outsider from just nationality and like a country perspective um so i got that immediately and then once you map that framework onto a lot of his movies you can kind of see like very much like a lot of the characters in there have that sort of outside looking in factor to it. And even when he was in boarding school, like that's something like I mentioned earlier, like we talked about the pipe organ and we talked about like listening to, you know, the scores on his Walkman at school. That's also something that like had influenced him clearly, whether it's nestled in through the subconscious or not, but like through like the architecture of the prison and the what was it it was the the oh the the classroom and the hallway to go to, to the classroom in inception like all of that stuff was partially inspired by his time at boarding school right um right. and the the constant moves and everything that he wouldn't have experienced had he not been moving around and going back and forth with all of that and so the the quote that he gave um about that saying in effect like i was always really sad as a kid because my parents told me that when you turn 18 you're going to have to choose do you want an american passport or do you want a british passport and i was always like i don't know what i'm gonna have to do and then luckily the rule changed before he turned 18 he said so he was like i never have had to choose and i always feel like i don't really miss either one because i always know that i can just hop on a plane and go back and visit the other one yeah yeah um but if like he was like if i was forced to choose like i truly don't know because like both parts are like so like intrinsic to his being and i think you get a lot of that you get a lot of the class stuff from england especially in dark knight rises and then you get a lot of the chicago stuff obviously in like dark knight where like part of that was filmed and like the americanness of like a lot of the dark knight like the heat bank robbery sequence yeah and a lot of the concept of inception the plot that kicks off inception in the beginning one corporation is forcing another one to they're trying to incept a thing for another rival corporation. Like that's a very American corporate thing. Yeah. 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 Like just that I did not realize that he grew up moving around so many times like that. And then once I saw that, I was just like, oh, that makes perfect sense. Cause that's kind of how I see the world as well too. Yeah. That opening chapter was really 
I mean, it's the most biographical part of the book, which, as we've said already, is not a biography. But I think it's important because Schoen uses that as a through line throughout the book to contextualize some of the choices and influences that that had on him. And I think Schoen does it extremely well. His choices of what to include, he justifies it kind of at every turn. You know, not to turn this into a literary analysis, but it made for a really compelling reading and really enjoyable reading. And, you know, so it's not exactly a biography and Shone does love Nolan's work. But one thing I did enjoy was he wasn't afraid to poke Nolan in their interviews a little bit. It wasn't fawning or sycophantic. You know, he described yeah, several yeah. times how they chased each other around the table in debates about uh, Nolan's films, some of the thought experiments, like we talked about that Nolan presented to him. So I like how you tell someone what right and left is using only words. Yeah, exactly. Which itself is a fantastic through line through the book as well. But I I just like that the antagonism, not overt, but like you would expect trying to present some criticism since you're sitting in the room with a guy. And actually led to probably one of my favorite lines from the entire thing. Tom Schoen brings up the problem he had with Inception, which I mentioned already, the, these fifth dimension beings who made, created this wormhole and created the Tesseract for Cooper to fall into. So Sean says, yeah, Sean says, you know, I do like the film and Nolan cuts him off and says, like it more unreservedly. And yeah. it just, just killed it's me. Such a, it's such a British way. Like, just like it more. Like Exactly. Exactly. But uh, tying it back to what you were talking about with the identity elements and his uh, for Nolan and his boarding school experience when Sean presents him with some of his thoughts about yeah I feel like this from this influence this and Nolan responded with it's not for me to say ultimately but I'm pretty resistant to the biographical interpretations because I find them a bit easy honestly and then Nolan continues with some seemingly like over earnestness but he's consistent in how he talks about this throughout the book he says it's not an attempt to be evasive i really do feel it's a part of myself that i haven't actually allowed to myself to address in my films and yeah he made this point so strongly i made a note when i made this highlight that said like tolkien and allegory don't you dare come at nolan with this mess yeah. <laughs> yes <I guess. laughs> it is not an allegory it is a story first and foremost which like I can respect I feel like we don't get a lot of that these days I feel like there's a lot of this you see this especially with like horror movies now where like it's not just monster is coming for someone the monster has to like represent grief or trauma or like something and then it the actual like monster scare is second to like whatever the metaphor is that they want to put onto it and so it is kind of refreshing to hear someone just be like nah we're gonna make a heist movie and that's but the twist is that the heist is in your dreams and that's cool. Wouldn't that be cool to see? Um, yeah. 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 Uh, another thing that I really liked uh, in the book was just thinking about all the collaborators, whether that be his wife, Emma Thomas, who's a producer on most of his films, his brother, Jonathan, AKA Jonah Nolan, who has yeah. provided the story or co-written scripts with him on some of his films. Um, especially early on most when of movies, I think, right? Like, right. And he, I mean, he has, and he also in other uh, areas of filmmaking, he has consistent collaborators. You know, you have like Hans Zimmer, obviously uh, Nathan Crowley, Wally Pfister, and then Hoyte van Hoytema for cinematography. But especially early on when he was talking about following and memento, I was really kind of struck by in, you know, every story, there's kind of these serendipitous moments of things that happen that, whoa, if it could have easily gone the other way and then this wouldn't have happened. And particularly on following, he talks about he submitted it to a San Francisco film festival. And he's yeah. talking about they could only pay for one print for the first public screening. And it was apparently a perfect print. Like they Because they put it, they got this one print of the film and they just showed it without having looked at it first. And it went perfectly, which apparently... He says, the irony is the print was perfect, which I later learned was almost unheard of. So you think, well, what the hell would have happened if it hadn't gone perfectly? If it had, if the film had come off the reel or yeah, if the print had been, you know, a piece of crap because the buzz that followed him around following, oh, uh, sorry, no pun intended, <laughs> that uh, was able 
they talk about in the book, he has people coming to him after the film has been shown and say, all right, well, what do you have next? And he has the script for Memento ready made, which you can then go to, well, he wouldn't have had the script for Memento and the idea if his brother hadn't given him the idea or planted the seed of the idea uh, when they were driving cross country from Chicago to LA and Jonah asked him about, or talks, was talking to him about enterograde amnesia and talking about like, someone who would you know forget things on short-term memory and yeah. so just those early turns and and all that just made me really uh kind of just marvel a little bit about kind of how lucky he was and then how lucky how lucky we are as an audience that, that things went that way <laughs> quite honestly oh and then he also mentioned steven soderbergh taking a chance on him to get him in the director's chair for insomnia and then from there, that success with Insomnia was the springboard for him to have a foot in the door to do Batman Begins, which really kind of was his first huge blockbuster film. So, yeah, the biggest switch for his career. Yeah, yeah. So without all these little moments, things could have been far different. And I don't think it's an overestimation to say we'd have a at least a, a section of the film industry that would be vastly different or non-existent today. And one of the other things, and this will be the last thing that I bring up for the my notes on the book, is uh, I wrote this down like five times uh, while taking notes for this, and I completely forgot that I wrote it down so many times in a very memento fashion. But the quote that keeps getting referenced throughout the book was the he keeps saying the cut is the most powerful special effect in the movies. And so he he's famous for doing a lot of stuff practically and like in camera, like that inception hallway rotating fight scene was done mostly with just actors and the set spinning. Um, right. Right. And the one a few shots. Um, I think there's a quote in there where uh, someone talked to Sean and he was like, yeah, I've, I've worked on a Nolan movie and I've worked on some romantic comedies. And sometimes the romantic comedies that I've worked on have had more effect shots than the Nolan movies. Cause yeah. he likes to do yeah. so much practical stuff. But the editing thing, too, is like it's such a it is like his greatest tool that he uses for these movies, like because there's no way to like orient yourself in these stories. Like if you told Memento from point A to point B, you would still probably get a pretty cool whodunit type story. But it, the the way that it is told helps the actual story. Like the form follows the function of what the story is yeah, there, yeah. which was like you couldn't do that with any other medium, really. Like, I guess maybe you could do that with like a concept album, maybe, but like the visual elements of everything that helped do that and like how each scene starts with a cut and then an image that orients you or a sound that orients you to whatever's going on for Memento. And then like the way, especially like with Dunkirk, how you've got three timelines going simultaneously, but each timeline is operating on a different level of time right like one is you know one is like way longer than the other one and then one of them is like five minutes and then the other one is like a three days or something i can't I, a week a day um, a, an hour yeah, yeah 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 and so like without obviously without editing that wouldn't work like without editing modern film doesn't work but there there was a lot of talk in there about the eisenstein breakthrough that happened where he realized like you put two separate images next to each other but if you cut in between them like thought a next to thought b when smushed together and cut next to each other forms thought c which is like a completely different and new thing other than what the first two images were which he uses to his advantage all the time with you know whether it's cutting across timelines cutting across different characters or even making like especially with the prestige where he cuts back to the first scene at the end where like you now the twist is you know like after you know what happens you can see that scene with clear eyes and you see exactly what really happened but it was there the whole time it was just edited and chopped up in a way that it kind of fooled you into it a little bit and so really yeah like the for all the like the technical marvel and like the big budget like i think tenet was probably the biggest one that um well maybe well, I'll have to check the numbers on the budget for like Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, but Tenet was like huge and like had a lot of crazy effects and explosions and stuff. But like 
the biggest thing for that movie was the edit and the reversal of the camera and how many cuts you can do. Right. Right. The quote about the cut being the, the cuts, like the greatest special effect ever. Were you saying you wrote yeah. it down five times? Uh, maybe you should get a tattoo of that. Uh, it's so good. I should. I should uh, get on a Polaroid with a Sharpie. Yeah. <laughs> and point at it, smile and take the picture. Um, but <laughs> quite honestly, that, that might be just, if I had to write it down, I'd say probably the, the greatest quote in the whole book. Um, Cause I never, you don't think of that as an effect because today we're used to a cut. We can, modern audiences are oriented that's not even a second thought but when you think of your film history the invention let's say of the edit of the cut is it's like the invention of the wheel it's equivalent to that yeah i mean right with without the cut you do not have narrative film or any film that we're used to today starting out with just you know the shot of the train coming into the station but then you get even a few years later the great train robbery and Mm -hmm. uh the year before that a trip to the moon so it's something profound it's so profound because it's so mundane that because it's something that you don't really think of unless unless it's attention is called to it like that so anyway i just wholeheartedly agree with your uh with the praise on that quote we 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 stand the humble cut and its role in everything but you also mentioned, uh, like how you touched on also beginnings and endings, how you tied the prestige one together. Uh, and that's another yeah. area that I really liked. There was a collection of quotes they talked about and discussions they had about that. I mean, of course, the last chapter is about endings, but kind of the way Nolan talks about beginning and beginnings and endings is something I'll definitely, definitely be focusing on for each film of his that we watch. And honestly, I've started applying some of that to other movies I've been watching because he says uh, the openings try to express a lot about what the film is going to be and how you are going to watch the film, how you want the audience to watch. And that the fact that yeah. that's the one guaranteed point of the movie where you have the audience's attention. So we don't waste it. And then when you put that together with Shone's observation of Nolan's endings often loop back to his beginnings, that's honestly a fantastic recipe for helping set the mindset when you enter a Nolan film. So those are things about beginnings. And then, He talks about when Nolan talks about endings as well. He says, I don't think any film can work. uh, It's rare with an inadequate conclusion. So you can maybe save a bad or average film with a great ending. And conversely, maybe you have, yeah, if you have a bad ending, then maybe it kind of sinks the rest of it, no matter what you do. And I'm usually pretty affected if running through a quick list in my head uh, by all of Nolan's endings and Tom Schoen really kind of describes the effect really well several times throughout the book with a few different sentences like right at the beginning he says easy to enter Nolan's films are fiendishly difficult to exit ramifying endlessly in your head afterward like plumes of ink and water the film we have just seen cannot be unwatched it isn't even really over in many ways it has only just begun and then uh, another time he says uh, the audience is left with the memory of what they have just watched at the very point when its resonance is starting to bloom in their heads, he's referring to usually Nolan just cuts the black at maybe a moment you're not expecting. But it also suggests something ongoing, another turn of the screw, something further up or further down the narrative spiral. And then finally, the ending also marks a beginning. Nolan's films leave an echo whose reverberations are felt only once it is over. And man, if you're trying to put words to a feeling, that's especially you know plumes of ink and water can't be unwatched it's not even over it's only just begun most recently of course that's that's exactly what tenet was for me i mean i was still trying to wrap my head around it wasn't entirely sure how much i I was just trying to grasp it what i thought musing on how utterly dense it was in some ways but the fact i mean i kept thinking about it for weeks and kept coming back to it and before I finally had the realization that, well, obviously something worked because I'm still thinking about it and not just in a, I'm trying to figure out the plot way. I finally got past that, but in terms of just the cinema of it right. and what it was trying to say with the saving the world and, and the going back in time and things like that. So, oh man, just the beginnings and the endings. And, and I mean, it, it makes sense too, like you said, with the prestige, with insomnia, with the first shot, and then it's tied to the biggest reveal later on in the film obviously memento easily inception does it too it starts with kind of a 
in media red shot of cops yeah. showing up on the beach and then we get there at the end and figure out oh that's what that was so just things like that and just a lot of light bulb moments and i loved how they talked about the beginnings and the endings i'm going to keep going a little bit <laughs> as well because i've yeah. got a few things left that i was going to talk about that really struck me and then i'll be quiet and we can finish this thing up but i guess i really wanted to talk about some of his uh, his thoughts on objective reality because yeah a lot of what he said about subjectivity kind of really hit hard with me starting kind of with i think when he says i've always been interested in the tension between the subjective point of view and our faith in an objective reality whenever i'm making a film i'm constantly being reminded of the paradox of reconciling our subjective views of the world with our deep-seated belief or feeling that there is an objective reality outside that is fundamentally unknowable we can't step outside our own heads. We just can't. And honestly, that felt like a personal attack because <laughs> I think that we see sometimes they're just like, no, it is this way. It has to be. And then something happens and it just completely resets my, my, uh, my audacity. You know, it's a, it's a good reminder how every experience really is unique to whoever experiences it. And I kind of forget that a lot that people can see the same thing that I see and it's totally different. And I've been trying to get better at keeping that in mind. But yeah. thinking about that reminded me of uh, the short story from Raphael Bob, Bob Waxberg's collection of short stories, Someone Who Will Love You and All Your Damaged Glory. Love that. Um, yeah. And yeah. the short story, These Are Facts. Fact, the things that are the most important aren't even shared. They are important only to us. And also, you can write it all down. You can put it in your book of facts, but the truth is no one can ever really understand the tangle of experiences and passions that makes you who you are. But I think Nolan, going back to him, ties subjectivity together with a really brilliant quote, which is practically the ending of the book. It kind of closes out their interviews. It's, Sean says that's where he leaves it. But Nolan says, the thing that makes films completely unique is the combination of subjectivity, the visceral experience, the shared experience and empathy with the rest of the audience. Movies have this very, very unique mixture of the subjective and immersive, but it's also shared. It doesn't happen with any other medium, which is why it's fabulous and forever. And off of that, the, the experience of the theater experience, I mean, of course, is really important to Nolan. He says he in the book, he doesn't like going to a film by himself. He he really likes going like with his family or being there in a theater full of people. But being able to contextualize that subjective experience and, and describe movie going as it's a it's a simultaneously subjective and community somewhat objective experience that you to share with everyone was a really good way of putting it in my mind and so making me think about those things uh maybe there's one other really great thing he said about subjectivity was uh our eyes don't see what you think they see only a small percentage of our eyesight is accurate and memories are like that so yeah, a good thing to keep in mind would be what we're seeing and being presented, especially in a Christopher Nolan film. You got to always keep that in mind because he also describes the tyranny of the camera. You know, it's you only get to see what it shows you and it's not always reliable. So you have to be always kind of questioning that, questioning your certainty. That reminds me of the the thought experiment that they did throughout the book. One of the one of the things that Nolan asks Shown to do is like just to Google something and then like see if you can or well or no no no. First it was go to the library and just like pull like a bunch of random books from the shelves and like look up some random facts from these books and then Google them and then see if you can get the same results to prove that like you know you can find stuff in a book uh that you can't necessarily replicate on google and one of the facts that shown comes back with is that kennedy only played golf like three times throughout his presidency and then he says when he googled that he was like actually i don't know if that's true because i could only find like two sources that said that and one of them was jackie kennedy so maybe she was just saying that to say it and then no one was like well that's not entirely like wrong. Maybe you found information, but the information that was true was that Jackie Kennedy wanted to present to reporters that JFK only played golf X amount of times. 
And then that's the thing that he's going to be like, that's the image that people are going to be left with. So the truth is that that's what she wanted to see. Maybe he did play golf more. Maybe he played less. But like the fact remains that the thing that you found was like what she wanted you to know. So like even diving deeper into the like, what is objectivity? What is truth? What is what might look like you were saying, like what two people looking at the same thing uh, will come away with two different answers. And that's also like a big, big crux of a lot of his movies. <laughs> right, right. And I think the last thing I'd like to talk about, maybe kind of address, is I think we've gotten kind of this far and without kind of talking about how Nolan works within, let's call it the Hollywood system. You know, he's kind of known for, and this is another through line of the book, being sort of like an independent director working within the system and shown tied in more boarding school analysis with this, which was fairly interesting and solid. And we may get to that, but taking all that into account, I, I was looking at that, how he operates kind of through the lens of his insistence on shooting on film and doing practical effects. So his thoughts on kind of analog on a personal standpoint have been an influence on me. They got me to think about, oh, well, maybe I would like to listen to my music on a, on a physical medium. So I got a turntable. He repeatedly says, at least a couple of times throughout the book, we live and work in an analog world. So that idea uh, is ever yeah. present. And, you know, then I've kind of taken, trying to take a turn back toward physical media for my movies after real, realizing, oh, I was a good choice. I, Yeah. <laughs> I will bang that drum forever. <laughs> exactly. You, you and you as well. But the idea of, oh, I bought this movie from iTunes, but I don't really own it. They could pull the rights at any minute and I can't get my file because it's DRM protected. Um, mm -hmm. I kind of also have a bit of, I guess you could say a contrarian streak. Maybe not. You know, I like plenty of popular things, but in regards of like the latest social media craze or something or the latest whatever challenge. My default reaction is kind of a, just a huge eye roll, even if there's something I come to like eventually. But kind of my initial reaction with some popular things is no. But anyway, that small part of me, I kind of see that with Nolan's adherence to film and analog and practical effects. And I kind of like, yeah, yeah, I like that he's there. He's kind of the figurehead in the world of Hollywood where the rule of the day is easy, cheap, bankable that Nolan tries to go the other way in terms of compared with doing everything on computers and shooting digitally, nothing against that. They've given us great films and everything. I mean, I love the Star Wars movies and all the things they do, for example, but still shooting on film, it's not as easy. Practical effects and figuring out ways to do stuff in camera is not as easy. And he makes the deliberate choice to do that. Yeah. In the book, he says, that's what you get when you have to find things that exist in the real world rather than just create them from nothing. The fact that you take a little pride in the trick can actually form the design or quality of the thing as well. And I think that is something to be proud of, especially working with the big studios. And it does feel kind of like the state of things is how he described it when he was talking about post-production for The Prestige when the studio, I think, I think he'd mentioned Buena Vista, but was one of the bankrollers, but they were all pressing him enormous pressure apparently to make it digital and you know just ship it that way. But he resisted and he said that was the point at which we separated from the rest of the industry or rather they separated from us. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I kind of think that's, that's it. Yeah. That's, <laughs> uh, yeah, not I think that's too much else. Uh, Talk about, I think we covered a, a whole lot of the generalities. You know, there are plenty of specific things for each film that they talked about that we're really excited to get to, but it makes much more sense to save that for our actual discussion of each individual film. So yeah. where we're going to go from here, where we're going is next episode, we will not watch following to start off. But before each Nolan feature, we are going to do an episode on a couple of influences or pieces of media that we think would be worth checking out before diving into the actual film. And in most cases, we pulled these from the discussions in the Nolan variations. But in a few cases, say, 
you know, for Interstellar. They didn't actually talk about contact once in the book, but which is a shame, an absolute shame. Yeah. <laughs> oh, we're going to watch contact say ahead ahead of Interstellar, and I think we are going to finalize this list and put it out somewhere accessible. <laughs> we'll, we'll put it in the notes. Yeah, put it in the show notes. Yes, indeed. And before we really get going with that, so anyone who is interested can be ready and and follow along with us on that. So I don't have anything else, Jake. Do you have anything else that we forgot that we need to say? I do not. This isn't like an advertisement for the book, but if you want to find it, it was uh, very informative. And if you would like to read it, um, it's available on Amazon Bookshop, uh, wherever you find books. Marshall got his from the library. Your so local library. Always, always support your local library. But that is everything that I can think of that we've covered. We think we've covered everything today. All right. So online on the social media, uh, you can find us at friends at dusk pod all spelled out no spaces on instagram and at friends at dusk on twitter and for each of us personally you can find me on instagram at marshall.doig d-o-i-g twitter at marshall doig and then on letterboxd at m doig and i am jake harris four uh on instagram and twitter that's jake harris uh no spaces four is the number uh, and then Letterboxd, I'm at 808Jake underscore. And, uh, you know, I have Facebook, but let's not uh, deal with that. And so uh, please subscribe and leave us a rating on iTunes and wherever you are listening to this from. Uh, that'll help us get seen and that'll help us uh, get the word out about this, uh, especially five-star reviews, especially good ones. And that is all that I've got to add. Do you have anything else? No. I think that'll do it for us. Uh, thanks, Jake. Glad to be here with you. And to everyone else, Always. we'll see you next time on Friends at Dusk. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Bye.